Turn with me to Hosea chapter 5 as we continue our study in the book of Hosea. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of this chapter this morning. Hosea 5 verses 1 through 14. Before we come to God's word, let's go again to God in prayer and ask his help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray for your help. We pray that you would intervene as we oftentimes fumble around with things that are so plain and so true. Because ultimately, we have sin. We struggle with simple things. But Lord, we pray that you help us, that even those simple things would become more clear, the complex things of your truth would grow clear as well, that we would understand the truth of your gospel, that we would turn again to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I read through this passage this week, reminded me of one of the great warnings that parents, if you're parents here, you understand this completely. If you have been parented, I'm sure you've heard this, that we, that choosing your friends is a very important thing, that who you choose to be your friend and who you hang around with is a very important decision in your life. There comes a time in a child's life when their friends start to have quite a bit of influence on them which can be a wonderful blessing, or it can be a horrible curse. It doesn't change much even as we become adults. We learn the kinds of people to steer clear of, the kinds of people we want to be around more. It's a pretty standard thing. Even as adults, we can be easily swayed or led down wrong paths. Rather than finding those people that give and bless, people seemed people that seemed good at first, maybe, but they end up being those that only take and curse. They become a snare to us. In our text today, we're going to look at this very idea as it pertains to the nation of Israel. The leaders of God's people have become a snare to the nation and even the surrounding nations. And this had a terrible effect as they went deeper and deeper into their sin. They distanced themselves from God, and then God ultimately distanced himself from them. This would eventually lead to the downfall of the great nation. There's quite a bit for us to take in here from Hosea 5, and were it not for Christ, there wouldn't be much hope for anyone or for any nation who distanced themselves from God, but yet in Christ we have the Son of God made flesh who came down, who drew near to us so that we might be His covenant people. Passage is a call for the church to examine itself, the church, for the church to look inside. How it is, how is it either a blessing or a snare to those around us? So as we study this passage, we're going to break, break it into three ideas, a snare, instead of a blessing, a hidden instead of present, and then finally decay instead of restoration. So with that, let's look together at the text, 
Hosea chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 5, starting at verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin." Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. I, But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and none shall rescue. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So the last time we were in Hosea, we were in chapter 4, and in chapter 4 there's an indictment on the people of Israel, but specifically to the priests of the people of Israel, who among other things were handlers of God's Word. They should have been preaching it to the people of God. It should have been a regular part of their work. Rather, they hoarded up wealth for themselves. And the Lord told them, my people are destroyed. For lack of knowledge. Today those same priests are in view as we read here right at the very beginning of chapter 5. But along with them are the leaders of the people, the royalty. These two groups would have represented the whole culture for the people of God. The most influential groups, the religious leaders and the civic leaders. And we read that they had become a snare to the people. While these words definitely do come to today's church leaders and civic leaders, the whole church, all of us, are put on notice. Because as we heard last week from First Peter, we, the people of God, are the priesthood of God. In Christ we have been made a royal priesthood, even a holy people for God's own possession. From the time that God first said, I will have a people for myself, that people were to be a blessing 
to the whole world. So as we come to today's text, we are seeing just the opposite, that they have become a snare. And that is where we're going to start here, start here in Hosea 5. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. The picture here is of the priests and the leaders becoming a trap to the people that they were supposed to lead. The picture of the snare and the net isn't one of obstacles, kind of like something that's in the ray, like a rock or something like that. But these are traps that are set intentionally. The purpose, destruction. The revolters have gone deep into slaughter. The purpose is the destruction of the people. If you can get a people to believe certain things and behave certain ways, you can control them. The people of Israel, or the leaders of Israel, knew that. This is present in all governments to some degree or form. And really, any place that you have people in charge, the temptation is going to be there to do that. Not only does leadership have a tendency toward this, but groups of people have a tendency to follow bad leadership. All the time. Why? Why do leaders tend towards sin and and people tend towards sin? Well, because we're born in sin. We are bad. We run after bad things. It's part of the fallen human nature. Yet what about for the people of God? It should be different, right? I mean, they have the words of God. The priests have the law to be read and to be kept in front of the people and their leaders at all times. The prophets of God acted as advisors to the kings. We saw that specifically as we studied through the book of Isaiah. And the kings should then execute the righteous judgment according to the perfect word of God. If everything was going right, that's exactly what would happen. In theory, this is what should happen, but we know it's not what happens at all. Not in our day, not in Hosea's day, not in any day. Rather than be a blessing, those leaders had become a curse. The two locations that are mentioned here are important here. They're both sites of Jewish importance. Mizpah is probably the Mizpah of Jephthah. Remember, we studied him in Judges, of Samuel, of Saul, the place where past leaders led in the, in the Jewish faith. And they, while they weren't all great, of course, they represented stability for the Jewish people. Tabor would have been very similar. It was a location of the great victory that Deborah and Barak had over the Canaanites in the book of Judges. Both were sites, or both of these sites were ordinary places up to that point, but now they represented God's faithfulness, and so they were celebrated kinds of sites. And it's those places where the trap is set. If you contrast this with chapter 4, verse 13, notice that, that verse real quick. The sacrifice on the tops of mountains, burnt offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth. These are just ordinary kinds of places. Any tree, any hill, any mountain, right? Where idol worship is kind of just taking place in these random spots. Here, it's taking place in very important places. Rather than just drawing a few people, these places would draw dozens and even hundreds to the pagan worship of the Canaanite fertility god Baal. As I considered this, this idea, 
of the of the people being a snare, drawing them to these people, and there's tons of people coming in and worshiping the Baals and the Asheroth. I considered the modern church with its bells and whistles, but with no substance, able to draw in droves, but unable to feed them anything of value. They may get donuts and expensive coffee, but they aren't fed the pure spiritual milk of the gospel of Christ. Rather than building a house of faith, their leaders are in the pursuit of wealth and fame, and they have laid a trap. And so many times, this is done in the name of here for the people and community service and whatever else, which aren't bad things at all. But if they were truly here for the people, they would teach them the true God of the people and what he requires of man. He requires your worship. He requires your life. He requires that you call upon the name of his son, that you confess his name, that you bow before him. And when you preach anything less than that, we set a trap. We become a curse rather than a blessing. Brothers and sisters here today in this church and in any other church, this isn't our opportunity to look at ourselves and then think, thank God that we aren't like those churches. What we do here on Sunday morning is one thing, but what we show to a lost world on the other six days should look very similar. And you may have people fooled, but there's no way to fool God because he sees the heart. This calls for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to examine our hearts rather than thinking of the church across town. Think of yourself. Pray for that church. Repent of your sin. That brings us to the next point, hidden instead of present. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. We've talked about this idea, this idea of their sin causing them not to turn to the Lord, of being so hardened in your sin that you don't even want to consider a way out of it. One regular fruit of a believer is repentance. Believers regularly practice in repentance, which shows a knowledge of our sin and a sorrow for it. That's the idea that sin separates us from God and the need for Christ. This is a regular thing for a believer. When someone is knowingly acting in sin and is unrepentant of that sin, that person is acting then like an unbeliever. That isn't to say that a believer can't do this from time to time, but the unbeliever always acts this way. Always. There's no change in them. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God, as the text says. It's a way of saying this, that they are unrepentant for their sins. And what's even more difficult here is when they go to find the Lord, He isn't there. Verse 6. With their flocks... And herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he has withdrawn from them. We read here that they're going to the Lord to make sacrifices, right, with their flocks and their herds. 
They're observing the feasts. They're observing, you know, in verse 7 it tells us about this new moon feast, which was one of the important Jewish feasts of the day. And they go to do these things, but the Lord is not there. The Lord isn't entrapped by His sacraments like a genie in the bottle. It's like baptizing Jude this morning doesn't make the Lord then have to save him, right? Just like taking the Lord's Supper doesn't require the Lord to do something different in us. The Lord is not entrapped by His sacraments. Just like when the people went to the temple with their flocks and herds to offer sacrifices on the altar, He wasn't compelled to come out and then bless them because of it. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 to get an idea of what I mean by this. But I think this is really important. We spent some time in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 12 through 15 really pair well with what we just read in Hosea 5. Speaking of the people of God going before Him, He says this, Chapter 1, verse 12, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I cannot endure saying one thing and doing another. So when you pray, I will not listen. If you're a parent, you may get this a little bit more. If you've been parented, you've tried this on the other end of the spectrum again. When the kids keep asking something, especially when they were really little, they would keep asking the same things as if the number of times were going to eventually just kind of build up and just kind of bowl me over, right? that it was going to finally wear me down and I was going to relent and say yes. And that's not how it works, right? We know that. I stopped listening really after the first time that I say no. It's not as if the terms changed. It's not as if the reason I said no has changed, right? Hearing a demand more than ten times doesn't actually soften me. It does the opposite. And maybe you understand where I'm coming from. How much more for a God who demands knowledge from His people, who demands righteousness and holiness from a people who act like they have none of these things. They think, well, maybe maybe if we just bring a sacrifice, right? Maybe if we bring a sacrifice to this holy city and we like add a couple of these things together, then, then He's going to be happy. But what does he say? Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. And understand this. 
Understand when God says he hates something, this isn't a hate for the sake of hate. This isn't hate, or this is a hate for the sake of love. He loves his people so much that he hates to see their vain worship. I mean, think of it this way. When I see someone disrespect another person, I'm a school teacher, I see this all the time in my classroom. I hate that. People are, com- are uh, created in God's image. It is an affront to the image of God. I hate to see that. I really do. But when someone disrespects my wife or one of my children, this other thing kind of happens to me, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. It's still hate, but it's much more visceral. It's deeper inside. Someone that I cherish is being disrespected in a way that I don't like. That is a hate that comes from this deep love. So when we read here in in verse 6 of chapter 5 in Hosea that the Lord has withdrawn from them, understand what's going on. It's from love that he does this. He doesn't want to stand there and see this happening. We've had a very vivid picture in the book of Hosea of this, have we not? Like Gomer giving birth to a baby that Hosea probably knew it wasn't his. That kind of hurt makes you want to walk away. And it's for that reason that Israel gets the judgment that it does. And that brings us to the final point, decay instead of restoration. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Beth-Avon. We will follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of judgment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. We read here that Ephraim, or Israel, will suffer judgment. Judah isn't left out of this. Hosea has mentioned Judah several times because of his close connection with Judah. We see in verses 10 through 12 they are mentioned. They have become a snare, turning from the Lord, turning to their false religion, and for this reason, the Lord would turn on them. And notice the type of judgment. Verse 12. But I am like a moth to Ephraim. I, the Lord, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. The type of judgment here is decay. The moth and the dry rot represent what we would think of like holes in fabric, right? You get a blanket after it's been out or it's been in the attic for several years and you, you spread it out and there's holes in it. Maybe because of moths, maybe because of just that dry rot. Something that was once complete is now falling apart literally at the seams. And this is a slow kind of thing that happens. Dry rot moths don't do things quickly. This is a slow kind of judgment. I'm afraid that in our own country, we've watched this kind of decline over the decades. And really, it was in full swing when we became a country. The Declaration of Independence was signed in the late 1700s, and we were in full swing of full-on modernism in the church at that point. It was sweeping through the country, replacing faith in God with faith in man. We studied this in Machen's book that was written in the 1920s. We've studied this, his take on it a hundred years ago, and it reads like it could have been written yesterday. 
It's a slow decay. Years, decades, even centuries until one day like a thief in the night, it'll be over. Or in God's case, verse 14, like a lion, a young lion coming in and snatching its prey and dispatching of it. It'll come in the form of Jesus returning one day or it'll come some other way. Either way, it's coming to this country. So what do we do? What do we do in the interim, brothers and sisters in Christ? We turn to Jesus, who not only came to us, He came to us, but He became one of us. He not only showed that God doesn't remain hidden and doesn't stay withdrawn, but He came near. He didn't stay out from afar and watch. He dwelt among us. He came. He knew God. He lived a holy life, a righteous life. He alone earned the gift of God. Yet He didn't earn it for Himself. He earned it for His people who had only ever been a snare. Who had a spirit of whoredom and who did not know God. For the church, we have a very important role. Oftentimes we get caught up in our regular day-to-day and we forget who we are. We have the work of calling people to repentance. Calling people to worship the only true God before it's too late. Our country is a great example of a country that needs to hear this word from the Lord before it's too late. This decay... The dry rot of the centuries will continue until one day it will end swiftly, just like it did for Israel and then Judah 150 years later, just as it has for countries for centuries on end. We are no different, brothers and sisters in Christ, but we in Christ are different. We are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So I ask you the question, Have we become a snare to one another? Not just in this congregation, but to the churches around us. We may have sound doctrine, but if we let that go to our heads, do we enjoy talking down about other churches rather than seeking to help them, seeking to lift them up? Let us examine ourselves. How can we be a blessing? How can we be the blessing that we are called to be Jesus came and He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And as the very righteousness of God, let us be a blessing to the world around us. To that end, if you're hearing this this morning and you aren't a believer, the call to repent and believe is the same to you. Jesus came preaching and He became preaching that same message. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus. And be saved. Rather than remain ensnared by your sin, experience the freedom that you can find only in Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. In conclusion, let us not become a snare to those around us. Rather, let us preach the gospel of love and understand to each other and to a lost world. Let's go to Him in prayer.